there, welcome to or welcome back to the Shift Control Podcast. Um, my name is Paul McAnallen. Thanks for, for joining me for the second part of the two-episode podcast uh, in conversation with Damien Hughes, the author of The Five Steps to a Winning Mindset. Um, I hope you enjoy it. Damien, welcome back to the second part of, of um, what was going to be a very short conversation on your five <laughs> steps to the winning mindset. <laughs> oh, thanks for having me back, Paul. I'm grateful. Um, I, I want to go backwards before we go forwards. You talked about um, in the last, we covered an awful lot of stuff in, in, in the first half of this session. Um, and we finished off with um, some of the values that um, Pep Guardiola um, has had tried to instill in his teams. And one of the things that you talked about was was um, value in action. Give, yeah. When does that fail really badly? Have you seen examples of where in teams that has failed completely that we could that you can relate to? Yeah, um, I've seen it in lots of different ways. So this idea of value in action is about what. So it's not the trademark behaviours, the behaviours that you're just not prepared to compromise on. So they're the things that. So you have to be clear about what they about what they look like. So I'll give you an example. Um, a number of years ago, um, I did some work for a team, and I want to keep this really vague because of what I'm, I'll tell you next. And the head coach uh, called me in, and I went into what I can, I would still describe it to this day as the most toxic environment that I'd ever experienced in, in any context, sport, business, um, industry, or anything. And it it was toxic, and, and I mean, there was some morally dubious behaviours going on in terms of, I'd, I'd heard stories about a, a rape case that had been buried, uh, stuff around performance-enhancing drugs. It, like, you get the idea. And what, and what became evident very quickly was that the ringleaders behind this were um, two of the best players in this dressing room. Now, when I stopped and thought about it from their perspective... Um, I didn't blame them in many ways. Morally, their choices were dubious, but they were just getting away with what they'd been allowed to. So they were talented guys, and the club had been paying them a lot of money, and all the feedback that they'd been receiving, both both formal feedback and informal feedback, was just carry on doing it. As long as you turn in the performance on the field, keep doing it. And But... The team wasn't performing, but these individuals were. And what we did with them was we got the team together and said, right, what are our behaviours that we're going to define ourselves on, like our values in action? And the team, including these two guys, sat there and they came up with three behaviours. One was uh, professionalism, and we defined what that looked like. One of it was about sticking together and being united. And the third one was about mental toughness, having that resilience that I know you work on, Paul. So what we did was we got each individual in that room to score themselves to assess how good they thought they were on those behaviours. And then what we got them to do was score each other, to give each other like feedback on it. Mm-hmm. Now, what was interesting was these two guys that I described to you earlier, they scored themselves as 9 or 10 out of 10 for each of the behaviours. What was fascinating was, because we did it in this safe, anonymous manner, the average score that they got from the other 22 guys in the dressing room was four. And they gave some very tangible examples of the behaviours that they were demonstrating that meant that they scored them as a four. Now, there's a really horrible phrase that I've only ever heard used in sport, but 
Um, I first heard it here where people spoke about the FIFO effect kicks in. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. When a, so when a culture is defined, you either fit into that culture or you find a way out of that culture. Good man. <laughs> yeah, they don't use those words, but you get the idea. Yeah, yeah. And what we did with the, these two leading players was we said to them, this is the rules of the game. These are the behaviours that everybody's asking for. And it was a textbook example of FIFO. So one of these senior players, he sulked about it initially, but then he eventually adapted his behaviours to fit into the group. The other guy put a transfer request in. in. Within the first six weeks, he said, I don't like this, I don't like where this is going. And he put a transfer request in, which, from the coach's point of view, they couldn't have snatched his hand off quick enough because they understood that culturally we needed to get away from the behaviours that had been tolerated to the ones that we were now consciously going out to create. And again, so when you take, if you turn a blind eye to this, if any of your listeners think that, oh yeah, this is something that I just don't have time to do, my argument is you don't have time not to do it because you will spend more time sweeping up the consequences of not defining these behaviours and then emphasising it as part of your culture. So it, it, the investment will pay back massively. Well, without a doubt, I think there's, you know, in business, uh, go back to what Barry Schwartz was talking about in the paradox of choice. If, you, if, if, you're, if you're a business and you really want to stand out, it's not about a, a highly impressive logo. It's not anything to do with your visual iconography. It's about behavior and culture. And if, if you don't get that right, then your business doesn't survive. And, you know, perhaps not as um, messy as in a sporting environment, but ultimately the same impact. You have to be very clear about what you will tolerate. You have to be very clear about what your customers want. Um, and you have to uh, live that um, uh, 100% throughout the organization. And that's tough for some businesses. Yeah, I, I mean, there's great examples of businesses that do it out there, but um, a long time ago, I did a couple of books um, on um, Tommy Hearns, the American boxer from Detroit. Um, when I was out there, I, I was I suddenly set me up a meeting to go to the head offices in Baltimore for Southwest Airlines. And... Um, they fascinated me, and I'll tell you why, because they're the only airline company in the world that's made a profit in every year it's been in operation. Now, it's been around since 1969, so to give you a clue that it's not a fluke. When I was there about eight years ago, they had a, a recruitment campaign going, and they had 5,000 jobs available. They were inundated by over 125,000 applicants. So one of the things that I was interested in is, how are you doing this? And I met the HR director, and she spoke to me about... The, uh, now, the term they used for their behaviours were freedoms, because that fitted their idea. But one of the things that they had was, you are free to solve problems. So you don't have to scale this up to your manager. If you see an issue, deal with it. Now, what was interesting on my visit there was, they had a wall that they called the E. Crow wall. Now, that was, I said, what's that? They said, it's an American phrase for cock-ups and mistakes. And they had a wall dedicated to their best mistakes that their staff had ever made which I found unusual at first, but when she explained it, it suddenly made sense. She said, think about it. If we're giving you permission to go and solve problems, we've got to accept that sometimes you'll get it wrong, you'll make a mistake. So as leaders, how we respond to those mistakes is key. So if we clamp down on you and go mad about it and punish you for making that mistake, nobody will ever make a mistake again, but nobody will ever try and solve a problem themselves either. 
But if we go the other way and we celebrate those mistakes because their intention was right, we'll create a culture where people feel psychologically safe enough to try new ideas. And what's lovely with them is any of the innovations that we take for granted on sort of budget airlines today, like Ryanair or EasyJet, you know, things like printing out your own boarding pass at home or not allocating seats, not one of those ideas came from those airlines. Every one of those innovative ideas came from Southwest Airlines and they came from the staff yeah. that, that, they were, that had permission to try and solve problems and innovate. So it's just a, I offer that as an example to show how being clear about the behaviour, in this case, solving problems, can almost be, like you can use it to almost infect a culture. You can get it, if you think about the consequences, how we're going to handle when this doesn't work, how we're going to handle when it does, you can start to see it disseminated where people can use their own intelligence yeah. to be able to solve problems in a really effective way. That's uh, that's interesting. It, it, um, Saeed talks about that in Black Box Thinking where the airline industry and the health industry have two different ways of dealing with failure. Um, and in, I think in America, outside of cancer and heart disease, human error is the biggest cause of deaths. And, yeah. and they, they have they have a way of dealing with it because you can imagine doctors are highly trained and highly skilled and they typically, well, they say typically, they if they make mistakes, they certainly don't want to boast about it. And if you're a doctor yeah. against the Joe, Joe Schmo on the street and the doctor says, I'm sorry, that operation didn't work out, you've got my sympathies, Joe Schmo on the street is not going to argue it. Um, just accept them. The doctors yeah. are almost omnipotent. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. Yet on the airline industry, when a plane crashes, the world is looking in. And it's in the vested interest of every airline to make sure that those mistakes don't repeat on a regular basis. So it's cause and effect. It's all about outcomes, really, isn't it? Yeah. Well, well I mean, that goes into... I'm, 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 I'm not familiar with the, with the Syed example that you offered, but it sounds fascinating. I often talk about the three things that I see inhibit a lot of leaders from taking these ideas on. And I'll just detail them as I've seen them. The first one is we do things through uh, results-based beliefs. So as long as you get the results, you go, oh, everything's okay. Then you go, hang on a minute, but the collapse... So you might hit your sales figure, but if the collateral damage of doing that is huge, you won't hit it again and again and again. But how many organisations go, oh, yeah, but we're doing all right, we're hitting our numbers, or we tolerate certain individuals that maybe don't display the behaviours we want because they hit the numbers. So that's a great example of where results-based beliefs can can could almost damage the culture. The second example that we make is, is it's almost that myopia, that unwillingness to see or learn from anything outside of your own industry. So it's the idea that, well, what can I learn from education or what can I learn from sport or what can I learn from, from, from the healthcare industry? When you've got that kind of closed mindset, it means that you can't learn from anything. It's almost like you only think that the answers lie within your world, and that's often, well, it's short-sighted in the extreme. And the third thing is you create a culture of helplessness, so the idea that people don't feel empowered to solve a problem, they don't feel that they've got permission to deal with something on the spot, they don't feel they've got permission to ask a question. They're the three things that I see can often inhibit a culture's performance and, and, and 
the kind of behaviours that people might say they want, but, but often fall short of delivering. And in in um, in sales, in soccer and rugby, it's it from the outside it always looks like it's only about results. You know? Yes, yeah, and and when that becomes the case, you you find that people tolerate behaviours that you wouldn't tolerate if, 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 if you had that sense of a bigger picture. So I gave the example on the, on the last podcast we did, Paul, around uh, the, the book I've just finished that comes out next year around culture and looking at it through the lens of Barcelona. Yeah. The example of Zlatan Ibrahimovic, why they bought him for 70 million and sold him for 45 million 10 months later. And there's lots of examples that Ibrahimovic himself talks about them. So he talks about that he was asked to accommodate uh, Lionel Messi by playing a different position, and he refused to do it. And the phrase that he said he used to the coaches was, he said, I'm a Ferrari, and you're driving me like I'm a Fiat. <laughs> now, now, that's... Like, we can laugh at that kind of ego responsiveness, but if you've established that your culture demands team before individual yeah kind of response then becomes unacceptable where you have to be you have to address it quickly and take action and in their case it was a it was one of a number of incidents that they said we can't keep tolerating this response we have to get somebody you know we have to replace you in our culture yeah. So you, you talked about the Barcelona view being humility, hard work and putting the team first. And, and I suppose yeah. the reason the reason I was laughing at, at, at this Latan story was because uh, I always thought I was never sure if he really did see himself as, as you know, as the second coming. But evidently he does, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, he, he, I mean, this, today he's on words that he actually he boasts about using them himself. So, <laughs> you know, he, he obviously does have a incredibly high self-regard, which has served him incredibly well at the teams. And he, he would probably point to the fact that, you know, he's won league titles in lots of different countries with lots of different teams. So it's not to denigrate his talent, but what Barcelona takes, in, the, in their particular culture, he, he, they just couldn't accommodate him. But that doesn't mean that he, he couldn't be accommodated in other cultures that would maybe value that kind of ego... Um, or that kind of selfishness. He's kind of good for Manchester United now because the team really needs a talisman, you know. Yeah, I think currently, I think he, I, I think he's been really good at United. And from what I've heard, speaking to some of the coaching staff that I know there, I think his examples of hard work and still, even at his age, being prepared and all the success he's had, he's still incredibly hard working and committed. I think. That example is powerful. So one of the phrases that I talk about with uh, some leaders is around who are your cultural architects? And what I mean by that is who are the people that demonstrate those behaviours beyond yourself? Because, as, because I remember hearing Clive Woodward say this years ago where he said the problem that he found when he was the head coach is that when you walk in the room, you've got the same problem that the Queen of England does you think the world smells of fresh pain because everybody's just going that extra mile. Everybody puts in a little bit of extra effort when you walk in the room. And his point was, I want to know what's happening when I'm not in the room. You know, and it's like that for leaders. You can't be everywhere. So your question has to be, what's going on when you're not there? Yeah. And that's where your cultural architects 
are essential because they're the guys that will uphold the standards even when nobody's watching. No, that's that, that's interesting. Um, I, I'm going to take it back just to the to the the so the thrust of this book. Sorry, the thrust of the podcast was getting to chat to you about the book, um, the five sure. steps to a winning mindset, and we'll probably come back onto these subjects again and again, Damien, because one of the things that that the, the book the book is almost um, prophetic and self-referential because uh, the simplicity, thinking, emotions, practicality, and stories are the is the acronym for steps, but this is what the book is really, really simple to digest, but it doesn't lose any of the importance going through it. It makes you, it's about thinking evidently. Uh, it's, it's motions you can take practical examples out, and it's there are stories woven th- throughout it. Um, I, did it take you a long time to get writing it? You said three years, did you? Yeah, so um, the research, so I did three years of going around and interviewing them, but I did, as I said to you in the last podcast, I grew up, um, my dad was a boxing coach, so I'd grown up in a sporting environment uh, from from as long as I can remember, being around sort of elite boxers and coaches, and then I'd, um, I'd sort of worked as a football coach initially at Manchester United, myself when I left school, uh, so i I'd sort of been soaking up a lot of those lessons for a a long time anyway. But then to go out and do that particular brief, to go meet them, uh, was fascinating. But I'll give you an example that I went out to interview, um, but not for the book. This is about eight years previously when I said I was in doing that book on Thomas Hearns. I went out to Detroit to go and interview uh, Emmanuel Stewart, who was uh, Hearns' trainer at the Cronk Gym in Detroit. And he gave a lovely phrase there that I that I talk about in the book in the emotional uh, intelligence part, where I don't know if you've been to Detroit any time in the last few years, Paul, but it's a city that's been blighted by real deprivation. It was America's first bankrupt city, yeah. and the sort of the lack of social care infrastructure. A lot of people can fall quite far through the gaps, and where the Crump Gym is based is in the middle of some of its most deprived areas. So you don't need me to go into detail, but I'm sure your listeners can imagine like this, the, how frightening some of the sites were, like the gangs, the prostitution, the drugs, and things like that. And when I went to meet Stuart, um, one of the questions that occurred to me, although I was doing the book on Tommy Hearns, was I said, how have you produced over 30 world champions in the 30 years that you've been open? So. Forget the industry of boxing, just their industry leaders in their own world. And he used a lovely phrase with me that you wouldn't expect in this sort of macho environment. He said to me, how did you feel when you came into my world this morning? And I said, oh, it was fine. And he said, no, no, don't give me that. How did you really feel? And I said to him, I was frightened, if I'm honest. I was was incredibly intimidated. Uh, I found the whole environment a little bit, um, I felt a little bit overawed. And he said, most people would do. And he said, you're an English guy, you come over here. You, you, I was the only white guy in the gym at the time. He said, you've come over here, it's a frightening environment. And he said, no, I can't speak to you and get you to listen to me while you're frightened. And he said, and it's the same for any young boy that comes into my world. If they're intimidated and scared of coming in here, I could be the best coach in the world but I'm never going to get them to listen to me and implement my instruction because their fear overrides it. And he used a lovely phrase at the heart of it. He said, I learned a long time ago 
that you need to contain before you ever explain. Yeah. What these are is you contain their emotions. He said you make people feel safe, secure, loved, valued. You're interested in them. You know their story. You're passionate about their success. He said, and when they're convinced that that you have their best interests at heart, you contain their emotions, and therefore they can you can explain what you want them to do, and they will listen to you at that deeper level. So, this, just to give you a, 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 an example in tandem, and uh, not as elevated from uh, the, the the source, but a client of mine talks about in selling. This guy runs one of the largest uh, automotive uh, organizations in the north of Ireland. He's got yeah. six hundred and fifty employees. He's flogging maybe twenty thousand cars a year. He's uh, incredibly energetic he's, he's his age he's about 66 67 he's incredibly energetic oh, right, yeah. and we, we, we talk about we talk about um, selling and he always talked about slowing down and opening up customers whenever you're trying to sell something to a customer he says slow them yeah. down and then try and open them up and and he, he didn't he's not a student of Daniel Goldman and emotional intelligence he doesn't read those <laughs> books but he's yeah. worked really hard at finding out what motivates people to how can you make somebody care yeah well, well, I mean it's another thing that you say that because the, I often say this and I say it with real reverence about Manuel Schu that it's similar to what you just said about um, about that that guy that runs the dealership, I said he's probably one of the least educated men I've ever met academically, but he's the most street smart I've ever met. Yeah, in terms of he just had that intuition about you know I love that phrase about open people up. Yes, yeah. So to, to, about just that containment, it's just such a powerful message. It really is, you know, and you know, to, to, uh, the guy whose name. Well, the people that are listening to this will know when I reference the scale of his his the largest independent automotive dealer. Um, yeah. But he, he he left school at fifteen, and he went to work when he was like the same day, I think, and he has been working ever since. And you talk about deliberate practice and deep practice and purposeful practice and twenty thousand hours or ten thousand hours. He's probably put in about seventy thousand hours, and he knows everything there is to know not only about uh, the business but about the customers and he, he's, he's quite a uh, he's a consummate he's an expert at what he does um, but he always talks about slowing people down and opening them up getting inside oh, okay. their mind and seeing the picture that they see and um, yeah and incredible emotional intelligence there's a there's the, the, on the boxing um, analogy Damien you, you talk about uh, Tyson and D'Amato and, and uh, how uh, Cost was able to fully see behind the eyes of the lion there was a bit of a sheep there yeah yeah exactly so like I love Demato. um he, like he was my dad's hero and uh, in fact at home now my dad's still got a big image of Customato up on the up, up on the wall and he, he, he'd been to meet him a lot in the 70s and early 80s when he sort of decamped from uh, from um, New York and got up to Catskill in the mountains up there. And one of the things that he, he always used to come back and talk about him was this idea that he was, that, that he said, I don't teach boxers, I teach young men that want to be boxers. And it's almost that idea that he would spend more time trying to unpeel the layers of the onion and find out who are you. You know, he, and the example about Tyson, like Tyson was an illiterate street kid that had been in all kinds of penitentiaries in New York, and um, he could. And Demato used a lovely phrase. He said, "There are no stupid children, 
that are just uninterested kids. Yeah. And so we have to find out what lights them up, what interests them. And he got Tyson almost to become, before he would ever let him box, he got him to become a student of boxing. So it was almost about taking interest in who are the people that fascinate you, how do you see them. And it was almost about learning to master that fear. He said everybody feels afraid and going into a boxing ring just accentuates it. And it was all about how do you master that to become almost the, uh, the consummate boxer. And Tyson's a great example because he sort of bought into that and then unfortunately uh, D'Amato died right. by, uh, before he won his first world title. But I think it just opened up the gates for the likes of Don King and some of the other more unscrupulous characters to get access to him. I, I, it, it's one of great life's what-ifs. What would have happened if D'Amato would have survived to have navigated him through for the next five years? I think that would have been incredibly fascinating. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I'm not, I'm not a, a boxing aficionado at all, but I always remember when he died, I, almost, I felt a real sense of sadness for, for Tyson because, I mean, you mentioned it in the book as well, that this vulnerability, this, this kid was looking for leadership, he was looking for guidance, and Costamato gave him that. And then, as you say, um, when, when he died, Don King was hovering around him like a vulture. Yeah, but there's also, I mean, there's a, I remember hearing, uh, I think he might have told me, Tubbs, the old great boxer, so he was basically suing Don King for about 20 million. There's a famous story about it where he was suing King for 20 million from breach of contract, and Don King turned up at his house and had a million dollars in a suitcase. And Tony Tubbs, I think he was talking to but he said, I'd never seen that much money before. And Don King is such you can you can walk away with this case of money if you prepare to you know sign a waiver that drops this legal action, and he did because wow. it's almost that idea like the powerful image of a million pounds in a suitcase versus the abstract concept of what twenty million dollars would look like. There's no comparison, and I think that's a good example that goes into how powerful our emotions are. Our emotions are confront drive us lot faster than our logic does so we almost have to become emotionally intelligent in the way that we try and engage and communicate rather than just think that logic will see us through yeah you, i i am um, i i'm a big fan of daniel goldman's work and and um you know would be trying to get from sales management even in sales teams to start considering what the world looks like from somebody else's perspective and how you can influence that positively. Um, and emotional intelligence is something that probably rivals academic intelligence for benefit. You know, if you, like, as you, you know, like as you said, a lot of the guys that come through that are really successful don't always go to school to do their learning. I'd say that EQ beats IQ. Anyway, I think like you go back and think about you know, some of, like some of the best leaders you've met are some of the kids at school. The ones that thrive were the ones that had that ability to get on with others. I, I mean, don't get me wrong, intellect is important, but it's not the sole arbiter of, of success. EQ will always get you, will open more doors than any level of intelligence will do. And I think it, it is something that, that it is creeping into the agenda of education, but it's happening at a bit of a glacial pace, whereas like you're describing, Paul, it's something that is so critical for success in, in any aspect of life. Yeah, I, I would have wished, um, so wished that I would have been studying it at a more 
um, at an age when I could have absorbed it more and I could have done something about it because it's a fascinating yeah, story. Yeah. yeah. Um, listen, we, we're, we're driving down the highway here towards the end of the, the second podcast, yeah. Damien. I got a couple of cheeky questions to ask you, okay? Sure, go ahead. This will be the... Um, I didn't, I didn't uh, forewarn you in this one, so I'm guessing you've yeah. read Legacy by Richard Kerr. Uh, James Kerr, yeah. James yeah. Kerr, sorry, I beg your pardon, I beg your pardon, James Kerr, right? So I, I, how do you, cause everybody I speak to that works in coaching thinks, you know, it's a great book. I think it's an amazing book, by the way. Um, like He talks about rugby, like life is a game played primarily in the mind. You know, all that yeah. stuff is brilliant. And you hear of people talking about sweeping the sheds and, you know, they, uh, Richard McCall, you know, be a better, um, uh, you know, uh, great people make great all blacks or whatever else. Yeah, yeah. I got this question to pose to you. Is it not fair to say that that book is only relevant to a team like the All Black or All Blacks, or do you think those principles are transferable to small teams in different fields, in different sports, sports that are amateur, um, sports where you're bringing together people from different um, physical backgrounds? So little, you know, uh, junior football, for example, you know? Yeah. Um, how transferable is the legacy of legacy to other uh, teams? A brilliant question. Um, I like the book. I think it's a really good book. Um, the only hesitation I have in answering the question is, I think that the principles, and I think that's the key point you mentioned there, Paul, the principles of it are really good. But I, I, I worry sometimes that people take that idea and just decide to transplant it without, without explaining the rationale behind it. Does that make sense? Totally. So... So I think the principles, I wouldn't necessarily say that sweeping the sheds has to be something that everybody does. I think that if, if you define your behaviour, I think it goes back to what I've said, define your behaviours, because your behaviours might be different from what the All Blacks are, and that's fine, but the principles of them being relentless at driving it. So the idea of sweeping the sheds is that idea that you're responsible for what you do, you know, you're a responsible person. In everything, you're responsible for what you put in your body, you're responsible for how you behave, you're responsible for your position. And that, it, again, it disseminates into, so you're responsible for cleaning the dressing room. So that fits the culture. The thing I'm supposed to, I'm saying is, I've seen a lot of people take these principles and then they become gimmicks if they're not part of the more sustained approach to culture. Yeah, I agree. Does that make sense? So, yeah. so I, I'd encourage anybody to read it and say, okay, what are the principles that we can now adopt that's unique to us? Not unique to the All Blacks, what's unique to us? So, because there's a danger of gimmickery. And when, it, and when things... So I see this, for example, when I go into a lot of clubs and they have, like, posters up on the wall that say things like, uh, winners never quit and quitters never win and things like that. And I say, get that down. Because it's rubbish. Because it doesn't fit within your club. It's just like it's just a bland statement. Because sometimes winners do quit. So what you're sending out there is a conflicting message, and it's just it's wallpaper. Yeah. Get things that define your your cultures, and what defines your cultures are the behaviours that are specific to your team. So if it's about we're all you know one in all in, get that emphasised. If it's about being thorough and professional, emphasise that and capture that in ways that are specific. 
I think yeah, that's a brilliant response. Um, I, I love the book, by the way. Um, I don't love it enough to get the author's name right, though, so um, I can't remember <laughs> his name. Well, I, mean, I, I, I think it's a great book. Um, but the, I agree with everything you said there, but it, but you reinforce the previous comments about, um, you know, behaviours, value in action, and then creating culture um, like Pep Guardiola um, and, and Barcelona were about humility, hard work, and put the team first, then you know what pictures are going to go up on the walls if that's what your core values are. Or your well, core I mean, Ferguson did it. You noticed that the two that Ferguson had was, um, it was about um, relentlessness. So the behaviour was, so it's the old Ferguson quote that he said, Manchester United will never get B. We'll occasionally run out of time, but we will never get B. Yeah. So when you know that, you go, right, okay, that's the first one. And then the other, so relentlessness, and then the second thing was about you play to win. You don't hope to win. You play to win. So once you've decided that you've committed to do it, we'll come after you relentlessly. So the stuff like that, if you go into the into the Carrington training ground, they're the phrases that you see up there all around. That's the culture. Now, again, that's different from maybe the All Blacks or different from Barcelona, but it's unique to them. It's part of what defines them. That's why, in their case, someone like Eric Cantona became such a talisman yeah. because he was a guy that was constantly innovating. He had that relentless appetite to go and win and to improve himself. So it comes back to the idea that it, the, the principles are great, but don't ape the principles. Identify them, uh, identify your own, and then use the principles to, to get them embedded. Yeah, that's, that's um, uh, yeah, really well put there. Yeah, you make me think a lot about stuff that, that I see in, in, in with clients just on, on that sentiment alone, Damien. Um, I, right, I, I, okay, so we're, this is the final question and, cool. and then um, well, I'll let you go back to the rest of your, your evening, man. Thank you very much for this. This has been brilliant. I, you can't use Alex Ferguson as an example here, okay? I, know, I promise you. Cool. Right. If you were to pick, pick one coach, Okay, um, that you, you look at as the exemplar, the coach of all coaches, um, who would that be? And what what lesson would you give to take away that you know that they were the author of? Yeah, um, I'm biased on this one. I'll tell you why. Uh, I, I've, I've referenced him a few times, but uh, I was incredibly blessed to grow up with a dad that was a coach. So I, 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 I was blessed for lots of reasons, but... He was very successful in boxing, but he was he made a difference to an awful lot of people's lives that have never boxed. And I was lucky enough that I obviously got a a, a a seat next to him to be able to understand a lot of the rationale and purpose behind it. And I think that phrase that we spoke about the customato before was that you're dealing with people that happen to do a job. You're not dealing so you're not dealing with a boxer, you're dealing with a person that just happens to be a boxer. And it's about being able to recognise the human being that underpins it. You know, we don't deal with accountants, we deal with people that work as accountants, we don't deal with engineers, we're just people that happen to work as engineers. And that idea of being able to to use a phrase of your of your friend to open people up, to be able to understand the world through their eyes and then be able to help and support them achieve what they want to do. That, to me, is the definition of a successful coach, whether you win or lose on the field itself. If they're, if they're the kind of results you're getting, you're a successful coach, you're a successful leader. Wow, that's brilliant. Yeah. 
yeah, I can relate to that flat out. I can relate, I can relate to that in so many different ways that uh, you need several pints of Guinness to talk about that. That's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, Damien, that's brilliant. Well, I'll tell you what, when I come over next, Paul, we'll do that. We'll go for a few Guinness and we'll trade some stories like that. Hey, well, you're on. That, absolutely. Um, easily one of the most uh, interesting conversations I've had in the podcast. Uh, a lot of people I know who have read the book would be really interested, and this would be interesting getting the same access to, to your time as I have the, oh, the, well listen it's an absolute pleasure to be asked and I, I know I said it to you before we spoke but I am genuinely grateful for you and your friends and anyone that has taken the time to read the book and even to listen to this podcast it's a, it's a real privilege to be asked so thank you good luck with the, Bar- the Barcelona book I look forward to that for definite yeah I'll keep you posted um, I've, I've, finished, I've submitted it uh, and the editor is going through it now um, this is the third, re- uh, third sort of revision of it and then uh, he's told me that it'll be next May he's, uh, he's anticipated to be out so uh, I'm, I'm really quite excited and sharing some of the principles of that too Brilliant, okay Listen, um, Damien, th- thank you very much on behalf of everybody who's listening thank you and, and we'll get a chance to talk again soon my pleasure. Look forward to it. Thanks, Paul. Cheers, man. Bye.